He fails the most basic duty to a nation. He fails to protect us. That's not what leadership is about. I'm a cheerleader for the country. You're listening to Campaign Confidential, our special podcast series on the U.S. elections. This election is going to break spending and raising records across the board. The 2020 election will be the most expensive in history. Small donors on track to give up to $3 billion collectively to Democrats. Trump is considering maybe putting in some of his own money in the campaign. Michael Bloomberg is pledging $100 million to Democratic PACs and campaigns that are assisting Joe Biden. No country in the world spends more on its elections than the United States. This year's elections are gearing up to be the most expensive yet. Despite the coronavirus pandemic, which has caused millions of Americans to lose their jobs and engineered a deep recession, we're witnessing record-breaking fundraising numbers. The Trump campaign has already blown through a billion dollars, about eight times more than they'd spent by this point in 2016. And Joe Biden's campaign and the Democratic National Committee raised a record-breaking $364 million in August. In total, this presidential election is gearing up to cost well over $2 billion. While those sums may sound extreme, that's still less than $10 for every person in America. And the huge role of money in American politics is not exactly new. But what is new are the circumstances in which this money is now being raised and spent and controlled. I'm Ryan Heath author of Politico's Global Translations, and today we're going to talk money. Why are American elections so expensive, and how is a global pandemic shaping the influence of money in the 2020 elections? To help us answer these questions, we brought in Politico's own Elena Schneider. I'm Elena Schneider, and I'm a national political reporter for Politico. Could you start by clarifying sort of the big picture setup for listeners outside of the U.S.? where I think a lot of people have this impression that there is so much money in U.S. politics that the spending is virtually unlimited. Uh, So tell us a bit about how much individuals and corporations can spend and what exactly is the famous pack that everyone talks about. So it would be totally understandable if you assume that there is unlimited money in American politics. And to some degree, that is right. I mean, if you look back at 2016, about two billion dollars was spent in that election, which is a, a number that you almost can't even wrap your head around. And we're all expecting that it's going to be even more expensive in 2020. But here's where there's sort of some some basic rules that sort of walk you through. So American campaign finance really changed in 2010 when the Supreme Court ruled in this case called Citizens United. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court. Robust debate about candidates for elective office is the most fundamental value protected by the First Amendment's guarantee of free speech. Yet that is precisely the dialogue that the government has prohibited if practiced by unions or corporations. Any union where any they clarify, where they sort of opened up um, who and what can give and who and what can give by unlimited amounts. Is there any distinction that Congress could draw between corporations and natural human beings for purposes of campaign finance. What the court has said in the First Amendment context, New York Times versus Sullivan, Gross Jean versus Associated Press, 
and over and over again is that corporations are persons entitled to protection under the First Amendment. Now, would, that, would that include... And so the, the system that we have now, courtesy of this 2010 Supreme Court case, is that you've got sort of two classifications of money. One is called hard money. One is called soft money. Hard money is what you sort of traditionally think of. You're a voter. You're somebody. You see a candidate on stage or on TV and you think, I really like this guy or this girl. I'm going to give money to them. That money is governed by restrictions and limitations um, by the Federal Election Commission, and they set limits on what an individual can give. So you can write a check for $2,700 per election to a federal candidate, so that for both a primary candidate and for a general election candidate, or campaign, I should say. And that means that you can't give more than that. Um, so that's sort of what we traditionally think of in terms of financing a campaign is that sort of hard money side. But the soft money side is the other end of things that sort of loosened up under this 2010 Supreme Court case where super PACs, PACs are political action committees where it's sort of this idea of you're pooling money, pooling resources to back an issue or back a candidate. They can now raise unlimited sums of money from both individuals and from corporations and can spend it however they wish and however much they wish. The limitations that they are governed by is that they can't coordinate with candidates. But there's always a lot of gray area in terms of how much people are actually held to that. But there have been new limit, there have been extensions to how much you can actually give now to a campaign and a state party. So you could traditionally give $10,000, $30,000, bigger checks to state parties. So not candidates, but to state parties or to national parties. And now that number has grown um, because of sort of convoluted legal agreements that both Republicans and Democrats have taken advantage of to almost, I believe the number now is $750,000, $100,000. And so you can actually give that maximum amount of almost a million dollars. And another way to raise money on this hard side is by also what we call bundling money, where a donor is going to go tap their network in the same way that this person was doing themselves, reach out to all kinds of their friends and say, can you give the maximum amount? And they sort of bundle that money together. And that's how they raise big amounts too. So like I said, it is complicated. <laughs> and part of the reason why people are so suspicious of money in politics is that there's just, there's a lot of gray areas and it's very confusing. Before we continue with Elena, we wanted to talk about this grey area that she just mentioned. Do you remember Ellen Weintraub from Episode 3? She's a commissioner on the Federal Election Commission, or FEC. They're the body charged with enforcing campaign finance law. For months, the FEC hasn't had the required number of commissioners in order for it to enforce campaign finance laws. I spoke with Ellen in May just before a fourth commissioner joined to briefly give them a quorum, only for another to leave, taking it away once again. There are supposed to be six commissioners, and uh, we are down to three, and it takes four commissioners to make most important decisions. We have uh, an enforcement docket right now of almost 350 cases, and there are about 227 uh, decision points, ballots that are sitting on commissioners' desks right now where uh, cases or fines or other actions at the FEC that require four votes have been stopped and they're waiting for a commission decision. So that's a substantial part of our uh, increasing enforcement docket that is just at a stop 
uh, right now. And it is really important that we regain the quorum and uh, that the agency is able to do its job because our core mission of making sure that the American public is informed about where the money's coming from and where it is being spent in American elections is ongoing. All the reports continue to be filed. They continue to be uploaded. Our, our uh, staff continue to analyze them. So all of that good work is ongoing and the American public is not deprived of the basic information about who is supporting which candidates. However, we also have this important enforcement role. We have a rulemaking role. We have an advisory role. And none of those things can go on until we have four commissioners. So as we move forward talking about money in this election, just keep in mind that the body in charge of enforcing campaign finance laws is not operating at full capacity. Let's return to our conversation with Elena Schneider. And is it now the case that basically you have to be rich or associated with a lot of rich people to run for election in the US? Or can you be an AOC or a real grassroots person and still break through? So it is certainly helpful to be rich for the vast majority of people who run for political office, from school board all the way up to president. You can write unlimited checks for yourself. Even Donald Trump has floated the possibility of giving money to his own campaign the way he did back in 2016. That helps. But that is not the only way, and in fact is often not necessarily the best political path to getting into office. So you mentioned AOC. She obviously was a bartender and a waitress. She's not somebody who comes from any kind of wealth. Women like me aren't supposed to run for office. I wasn't born to a wealthy or powerful family. Mother from Puerto Rico, dad from the South Bronx. I was born in a place where your zip code determines your destiny. My name is Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. But she had this incredibly compelling story and was able to tell it in such a way and reach so many thousands and millions of people that she's raised unbelievable sums of money from individuals that has lifted her campaign. And another really good example of that during the presidential race was actually Pete Buttigieg, who is the South Bend, former South Bend mayor who does not come from money, and he would get on stage often and talk about how many hundreds of thousands of student loans he still had to pay off. So this one's personal for us. Um, as a household, we're, uh, we're, we got six-figure student debt, too. Um, but he was so good as a speaker and as an interview subject. He had this really compelling story that he became one of the most prolific fundraisers and just brought in enormous sums of money because people were inspired by him. Yeah, that's a really interesting point, the way that you, by having the personality in the story, you can bypass the money to some extent, mm-hmm. or by having the money, you can bypass having a personality and you can get to <laughs> Both way. those things, exactly. <laughs> uh, one observation I had about 2016 was that Trump essentially won with less money in his pocket than Hillary Clinton, despite being the billionaire. But he got masses of free media coverage. And I wonder, is that a kind of scalable model that would make money less important in elections? Or is it another case of Trump being this outlier that just proves the point that you really do need more money than ever? I think that all of the Republicans who ran against Trump in 2016 during that primary would argue that this is a Trump-specific phenomenon that there is an element of being able to not even need the ads, that paying for ads are, are is not necessary when every news channel is already talking about you. And whether or not that's replicable is very hard to say. Mm-hmm. 
We know that Joe Biden nearly ran out of money at various points in the primary, and that was a big talking point. Brian Schwartz reports that some donors are privately worried that Biden may not have enough cash even to make it through Super Tuesday. And Brian joins us now. Why is the president's fundraising flagging? Well, the former vice president... Where do the Trump and Biden campaigns stand today in terms of what they've raised and what they've got left in the bank? So this has really been a fascinating storyline because you're right. Joe Biden is famous for not being a very good fundraiser. You know, in the words of Terry McAuliffe, a a former Virginia governor who, who knows Biden well said... It's just not his top priority. It's just not something that he is as focused on as maybe other politicians. And that's really been his downfall. It's been something that he has had to really struggle against. But he was able to overcome that the moment that he became the presumptive nominee. It was as if a faucet that had been totally off just started gushing. And he was able to then bring in all this money, not necessarily, certainly some money excited about Joe Biden, but really money to get Donald Trump out of office. That's really what we're seeing here in terms of, of the money race. And back in March, when, when Joe Biden was basically broke, but was starting to see this big rush of money come in as he was now the presumptive nominee, Donald Trump had this enormous financial advantage. I mean, he had hundreds of million dollars more in the bank waiting for Joe Biden to come in um, than Joe Biden did. And that's the advantage of being the incumbent. You know, you don't have to run a primary. You don't have to waste all that money or use all that money. But over the last six months, we have seen month after month after month, Joe Biden has either been able to beat Donald Trump in monthly fundraising or has basically kept pace with it and has closed that cash gap between the two of them. And in fact, in August, just last month, he raised $365 million, which is a record shattering total for a single month for a presidential candidate and beat Donald Trump by about $154 million in one month. And we've heard in recent days that Trump has said if he has to do it, he'd be willing to put in, it's said, up to $100 million into his own campaign. If we did need, we don't, because we have much more money than we had last time in the, going into the last two months. I think double and triple. But if we need it anymore, I'd put it up personally, like I did in the uh, primaries last time. In the 2016 primaries, I put up a lot of money. If I have to, I'll do it here. Do you see that as a sign of strength or a sign of weakness that he would be contemplating that? I, I don't think that it's ever a good sign when you need to dip into your own you know, bank account. Um, so it is this sort of tacit acknowledgement that he's behind. While love or hate of President Trump is a factor in a lot of fundraising on both sides in 2020, there's other factors at play too. Campaigners are getting more creative and their overhead costs are much smaller when virtually every event is a Zoom call. This is Tim Lim, a Democratic fundraiser, explaining the new dynamic to my colleague Scott Bland. The good side, it's very easy to set up a fundraiser now. You don't need to rent out a restaurant. You don't need to find an office space. You don't need to claw after the candidate's schedule or make sure that they need to get on the plane. Uh, You just got to set, you know, you just got to make sure that they have a computer and a good Wi-Fi connection. And so, you know, from an overhead cost, I mean, you know, your ROI from fundraisers just exponentially jumped. And here's the thing, you know, some people are like, are exhausted by the Zooms. So uh, what's what's happening is that uh, in a lot of cases, people will just donate and they won't even go on the Zoom because they're just exhausted. So it's even better. You're just getting the donation and you don't have to do much work for it. Tim tells the positive side of the story. One-off events are easier. 
But scaling Zoom fundraising across a whole state or country is harder. You need to get thousands of people to reinvent their methods. And it takes something very weird or special to get a huge group together during a pandemic. Ben Wickler from the Wisconsin Democrats, who we spoke to back in episode one, pulled off what might have been the biggest fundraiser of the election on Sunday. He got more than 100,000 people to pay to join a live stream to watch the stars of the 1987 fantasy film The Princess Bride do a table read of that cult movie script. Hello. My name is Inigo Montoya. You killed my father. Prepare to die. That's bigger than any Trump rally, even before the pandemic. And Wickler says it's the state party's biggest ever fundraiser. It could even be a trend. The cast of the popular American TV series Parks and Recreation wants in. They're going to do their own quote-unquote town hall event, September 17. It's supposed to rally Wisconsin progressives. It's also going to milk their wallets. Not only are online fundraisers easier to organise, they're also less expensive. So why would candidates need $2 billion for the campaign anyway? Let's get back to Elena to break down what all of this money is actually spent on. Oh, that's a great question. Um, The biggest chunk that they would be spending money on right now is what we call paid communications or ads. So this is everything from your sort of traditional 30-second TV ad that you see to uh, the ads that you might see on your Facebook page, to the ads you might see in a YouTube video, to the mailers that you would get in your mailbox, to the canvasser, the person who shows up at your door to knock on your door and talk about their candidate. Those are all the ways, and all of that takes an enormous amount of money, you know, everything from also like getting people registered to vote. Um, I mean, well, actually, that's a big factor. You know, yeah. I grew up in a country that has compulsory voting. And then I reported from Belgium, which also has compulsory voting. So you don't really spend money getting people to the polls because, you know, they've got to do it. Otherwise, they're going to get a fine or something else terrible is going to happen to them. Uh, but in the US, it's all about driving your base and making sure that they do the things they say they want in that ballot paper. Yeah, it's remarkable how many people don't actually participate in American elections um, because it's not required, like you said. And in fact, often a lot of states don't even have automatic voter registration when you turn 18. You have to go actually register yourself. And in a pandemic where people are much more nervous about potentially voting in person, there's a whole new wave of spending that's focused on getting people aware of how they can vote by mail. So there's also an unbelievable sums of money that go towards voter registration and voter turnout and making sure that the people who are going to vote for you are likely to vote for you will actually participate. Mm-hmm. And I've got one final question, which is about some of the personalities that are involved in the campaign. And it does strike me that there is a, a real army of paid professional campaigners in the US and they exist in other countries, but usually they're a little sort of headquarters sort of crew. They aren't field officers strung up and down the country. They don't have their own cars and drivers and things like that that we've been hearing about from some campaigns. Uh, so are there any you know, big figures that we should know about before the election and that might 
turn up on CNN and Fox afterwards as uh, the new talking heads. This is probably a very uniquely American uh, manifestation of politics, which is where political operatives become celebrities and become well-known. Um, there are a couple of people that I would spotlight. One you sort of alluded to, which is who is Brad Parscale, who was Donald Trump's campaign manager. He was the 2016 digital uh, manager. Uh, it was in charge of the, the digital effort, then was elevated and has served as the campaign manager for the last several years. He was demoted a couple of months ago, which was um, quite the sort of dust up of criticisms of how he was handling the campaign and, in fact, how he was spending. And he, based on reports, um, he was using some campaign financing to, to, to get himself a driver in a car, um, which certainly raised a lot of eyebrows because that's not actually something that typically we see from political operatives. Meet Brad Parscale. From dead broke to the man Trump can't win without. Brad was getting rich. How rich? Really rich. But don't tell Donald. Bill Stepien is Trump's campaign manager now. A little softer of a personality, not quite as out front, not quite as bombastic, and doesn't quite cut as big of a figure as Brad Parscale, but certainly somebody to keep a close eye on. Um, another person you might see a lot on television these days from the Biden campaign is someone um, named Simone Sanders. She was a top uh, Bernie Sanders surgeon. Uh, several years ago and was scooped up by Joe Biden during um, his presidential primary. And that was a big get for him. She's um, a very, very good sort of communicator and advocate on his behalf and somebody who is regularly seen on television. I was sitting on television one random Thursday and uh, I, we were getting ready to go on and they gave us the, the topics and we were discussing 2020. And I just realized that I didn't want to spend this cycle talking about what other people were doing in the campaign trail. I wanted mm. to go do it. Mm. And, um, so and I one thing that's notable about Biden is how important family is to him. So yeah. he often leans on his own family members to be advisors. Yeah. Well, it's interesting, actually. I think both the, the presidential candidates this year lean on family in a way that we haven't always seen before. Uh, in Joe Biden's case, Jill Biden, um, who gave a, a really strong speech on her husband's behalf at the convention. We have shown that the heart of this nation still beats with kindness and courage. That's the soul of America Joe Biden is fighting for now. The same thing goes for Trump, though. I, certainly his, um, his daughter, Ivanka, uh, has been very much out front. And we can probably expect to see more of her on the trail, introducing him, trying to reach out to suburban women, which is a key constituency that he needs. So certainly family in a way that we haven't seen in a number of years. A lot of family members are playing big roles in this presidential cycle. You'd think that a pandemic and a recession would lead to a more modest campaign season. As we've just heard, that's not the case. So there's no alternative to concluding that it's much more than economics which drives American election spending. America's media-driven culture, its lack of soft money spending limits, and the fact that when all is said and done, the 2020 presidential election will have lasted for 1,194 days. All of it guarantees an expensive election. But we've also learned during the pandemic that there are other, less expensive ways to campaign. Come November, we'll learn which fundraising and campaign techniques are declared the winner, as well as which candidates. That's all for this episode. I'm Ryan Heath, coming to you once again from New York. The regular EU Confidential crew will be back on Thursday, and I'll be back with another episode of Campaign Confidential next Tuesday. Thanks as always to Christina Gonzalez, our producer in Brussels, and to Scott Bland. Bye for now.